0: How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the first inaugural episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich, the dude cuckoo enough to spend two years reading all of the U.S. presidential memoirs. Now I'm here to share some of the interesting stories and perspectives from my studies. I hope you enjoy it. For today's episode, I'm going to take you all the way back to 1824, to the election that decided the sixth president of the United States, Uh, This election was significant for a lot of reasons. And if you are very interested, you could go ahead and Google it and do a couple of the research for yourself. Um, But I'll give a quick uh, highlight recap. Uh, This election was really a a time of transition for the country. The previous five presidents were all founding fathers of uh, the union. So you talked about George Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. All of those guys were founding fathers. Uh, and this election was really the uh, tip of the hat to the next generation of, of leaders in America. Uh, so we no longer were uh, tapping the people who were signing the declaration or the constitution. We were looking for uh, you know, the next generation of, of American leaders. Uh, so that actually caused a lot of uh, division because people didn't really know who those leaders were. Uh, there's a couple of different things that play into part on that. Uh, that we can we will go over later Uh, but really it was a a time of political division and a lot of historians will say that this election in 1824 was actually the first one uh, of a true American election Uh, so it what I mean by that is it basically brought into play you know modern politicking Uh, when I talk about modern politicking I'm talking about vote whipping uh, you know backdoor deals like quid pro quo actions and uh, really, just the the end of uh, what Monroe would call the era of good feelings. The era of good feelings was basically uh, this whole concept of political cooperation. You know, back in the founding fathers' era, uh, uh, people would t- actually try and work with each other, which is a you know a, a crazy idea uh, in today's day and age. Um, almost to the point where, you know, there wasn't even really competition where uh, Monroe actually in the previous election to this one ran totally unopposed, which is uh, one of only three times in history that's happened, uh, the other two being the elections for George Washington, who uh, nobody wanted to run against. So uh, that kind of is the the era of 1824. So people are starting to uh, come to terms with this new America. uh, And with that, we had a lot of candidates Uh, because of Monroe's election in 1820 and him running unopposed, only having one party. That party was the Democratic Republicans, which sounds kind of just like a little mashup of our our current uh, political situation. Uh, We had candidates that rather than being divided based on political ideology, like your stereotypical uh, division of American politics now with Democrats and Republicans, you had basically division uh, based on regionalism. What I mean by regionalism is like, uh, you know, you had a candidate from the South, a candidate from the Northeast, a candidate from the West states. Uh, and so we we had four people running under uh, the Democratic Republican Party, uh, all just trying to take their own states up to the top. So uh, I'm going to quickly go over the uh, major players of this event. So the first... are going to be the four candidates that were receiving votes uh, in the election. So number one, John Quincy Adams, uh, the son of the second U.S. president, current secretary of state, uh, also did a lot of other cool things. Uh, If you ever read his diaries, he's kind of a right place, right time kind of guy. He was minister to Russia when Napoleon was uh, sacking Moscow and uh, was there for the 100-day return in Paris of, of Napoleon. Uh, Andrew Jackson, who at the time was, was really not a politician, more of just a uh, really popular war hero, which is a theme you'll see throughout American history, is a, you know, war heroes uh, having good political uh, odds in the future. So uh, Andrew Jackson, again at the time, really was an outsider candidate, rode uh, widespread fame into prominence. Uh, those were our two major players. The election, but the other two players who did receive votes: Henry Clay, who was the current uh, Speaker of the House, uh, probably the person with the strongest political acumen, uh, and a lot of historians today will regard him as one of the most powerful men in U.S. Uh, politicians' history because of his uh, strong influence on U.S. politics. Basically, for for decades, uh, he was a major player. Uh, and then the, but the fourth person, William Crawford. Uh, He was the uh, Secretary of Treasury at the time, uh, and he actually served under the last two presidents. So uh, he, because of that uh, experience and his connections, ended up getting the the favorhood of uh, both the late presidents Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Uh, Important to note about him at the time, uh, within the last year or so, he had actually suffered a stroke, though, and so uh, his candidacy uh, was often uh, mirrored in uh, controversy due to uh, just concerns about his health. Uh, so yeah, and then there was two minor players. Uh, number one, Martin Van Buren, who's going to be the future eighth president of the United States, who's just getting started on a uh, political course uh, that would have him be a major part in the next uh, couple decades. And then the, the last uh, mayor, major player is going to be General Van Rensselaer, who I'm going to go ahead and refer to as General Van Rennie for the rest of uh, this, this episode, just because his name is so hard to pronounce. Uh, but he's actually a top 10 richest American in history. So think about Ford, Gates, Musk, all those guys who have a ton of money now. This guy's right up there with him. Uh, and uh, he's actually also a war hero, same as Andrew Jackson. Uh, and serving in the House, so with political experience, he's from New York. He's a friend of Martin Van Buren, who's going to play a big portion of this this story. Uh, they're friends because they're you know mutual Dutch heritage, uh, as well as being from the same home state. Important to note about James uh, General Van Rennie is he's brother-in-law through his first wife with Alexander Hamilton. Which, if you've seen the play Hamilton, you know he doesn't really like the Adams that much. So. Uh, General Van Rennie has a distaste for uh, John Quincy Adams and his father and the whole clan. So i uh, going to throw it back into the uh, story itself. Uh, so uh, the original election takes place uh, from October to December 1824. Uh, again, this is our first toss-up election, really, where we uh, didn't have... Uh, Any major candidate come to the front where everyone was like, oh, that's that's our candidate. That's our guy. You know, we really want him. Uh, So we ended up uh, with uh, a a very split vote. Uh, Andrew Jackson won 11 states, uh, which was 41 percent of the vote. John Quincy Adams won seven states with 31 percent. Crawford won three states with 11 percent of the popular vote. And then Clay won three states with 13 percent of the popular vote. If you're uh, counting back home, that means at this time in 1824, we had 24 total states. So uh, with Andrew Jackson winning the, uh, the most votes, but not a plurality, which basically means he didn't reach 50%, uh, both of the electors, the states, as well as the popular vote, according to the 12th Amendment, which was pretty new uh, at that time, a very recent amendment to the Constitution, uh, the election was going to go to the House. So the House, uh, according to the 12th Amendment, could only take the top three candidates. Uh, so who were the top three? Well, Andrew Jackson, and John Quincy Adams with 11 and seven states each were obviously uh, number one and two. Uh, but Crawford and Clay, who had both three states each, kind of were a little bit of a toss up. Uh, the important thing to note with the, uh, the election and that whole concept of regionalism is Crawford was the candidate for a lot of the South. So uh, Crawford's three states that he won were Virginia, Georgia, Delaware. Virginia and Georgia were very big slave states due to that three-fifths compromise, uh, which counted slaves as a portion of the population. Uh, Despite Henry Clay having more political votes or more uh, popular votes, sorry, than uh, Crawford, he actually had more electoral votes just because of representation of Virginia and Georgia. So uh, Crawford ended up, Uh, the third man in for uh, the election in the house due to the fact that they went 41-37 in the electoral votes so uh, what that means is this left uh henry clay uh on the the out so (laughs) henry clay conveniently enough is the speaker of the house at the time which is where this election is going to so uh henry clay though he loses the election becomes the the, essentially the most powerful person in its decision via both his uh, ability to whip votes just being the speaker of the house and controlling the singular party there uh, but also because he's got three states behind him that have voted for him and effectively can do his bidding so (laughs) every every single candidate who's still left so we've got jackson adams and crawford the every single party is immediately thinking, "How do we get Henry Clay into our uh, into our party?" Uh, so Henry Clay is kind of like the man to want uh, going up to this this election in the House. Uh, so you think that it would probably spend a lot of time of courting and uh, times for you know people to come in and, and try and convince Henry Clay, uh, but surprisingly, Clay uh, declares pretty early that he's going to side with john quincy adams important thing to know about henry clay at the time is his ambition did not change Uh, he was still looking to be president of the united states (laughs) henry clay actually that ambition would drive him four more times to run for uh, president of the united states uh, over the course of the next couple decades uh with three total failed general elections and two Uh, nominations of his party being failed so five total times henry clay runs for president unsuccessfully which kind of gives you a little bit of an understanding like this guy really wanted to be president and uh was going to do everything that it took to put himself in the best position possible so uh arguably you know this is a, a little bit of a gray area in history that you can read a little bit about in john quincy adams diaries there's a lot of online material too Uh, But there's a couple meetings between John Quincy Adams and Clay at the time, as well as their their two parties. And uh, John Quincy Adams is the current Secretary of State. And knowing that uh, three of the previous five presidents, so a a majority of the last couple presidents, uh, have all come from a former role of Secretary of State. So Clay makes his intentions known that uh, out of this election, what he wants to do is be the next man up. So how do you be the next man up? you be the secretary of state. Uh, John Quincy Adams in his diaries uh, basically acknowledges the fact that those conversations occurs uh, and acknowledges that he knew that that was Clay's intentions, but does not acknowledge that he promised it or uh, that there was any type of deal between them. So um, if you take John Quincy Adams word for gold Uh, What that basically means is Clay was operating with an assumption, but not a security, that he was going to uh, be a part of John Quincy Adams' uh, cabinet. Uh, On top of that, Clay, you know, politically, he was uh, still concerned politically, uh, and he agreed most with John Quincy Adams and his policies, uh, and he really did not think that either of the last two candidates were going to be good presidents. He thought that... Killing a bunch of british people in the uh, Battle of New Orleans did not qualify Jackson to be President of the United States. He thought you needed a uh, parliamentarian, someone with uh, political experience, political acumen, and uh, that wasn't Jackson. Uh, and then he was really concerned about Crawford's physical capabilities to get the the job done. Uh, again, he had that stroke recently, and. Uh, you know, it, it was a lot of questioning whether uh, Crawford was going to be able to, to do the job. So, with the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, officially uh, declaring his uh, allegiance to the John Quincy Adams uh, camp, that causes a lot of changes in the election between uh, the first part of the election, which was uh, the general popular votes, and then the vote in the House. So just to recap a couple of those those changes, uh, North Carolina, the whole state flips from Jackson to Crawford. The Illinois and Maryland delegations, who uh, at the time had a plurality for Jackson, both flipped to John Quincy Adams. The reasoning being, uh, they had both district-based uh, voting, uh, but which meant that basically all of their delegates were kind of convoluted in the way that... Uh, people would end up winning the elections Um, the popular vote however was won by john quincy adams in both of those elections and so they were like all right we'll just move on over they were ready to you know abide by the popular vote and they moved to john quincy adams Uh, last one to note is uh, louisiana who at the time split for jackson Uh, moved back to Adams, Uh, Louisiana didn't have any popular vote at all, which was kind of common in these elections of that day is people (laughs) didn't even really vote. It was more of the representatives who voted for them. Um, They just flipped. Uh, And there's not really a strong reasoning behind. So it's probably the doings of Henry Clay or uh, something of the sort where a lot of the electioneering and political uh, maneuvering was occurring where uh, going into this uh, this vote in the House, the states had totally flipped. So now rather than Jackson being in the lead, Jackson was down to seven states going into the House. Uh, John Quincy Adams was up to 13, and then Crawford had bumped one up to four. Um, important thing to note is 13 is the magic number for for this, uh, this election in the House, which means uh, effectively John Quincy Adams, if everything shook out like it should – uh, he should win, despite Jackson having more states in the general election and more in the popular vote. Uh, the problem was Henry Clay did not have full power of the House or full power of, of DC, and uh, there was a rise of prominence of a, a p- political, you know, polar opposite of him in the form of the eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren. Uh, Van Buren, who was from New York. Uh, was able to uh, basically come in and convince uh, about half of the new york delegation which by the way had voted originally 26 people for adams five for crawford four for clay and one for jackson that they should all move to the crawford camp Uh, so what his intentions were with that uh, was that new york would become an abstaining vote due to the uh the tie and they would produce uh a tie in the the house uh, vote which meant you know jackson would have seven john quincy adams would get bumped down to 12 which was not the majority he needed crawford four and then abstaining from new york you'd have one uh in his memoirs, Martin Van Buren uh, surmised that after that first vote failed due to New York's delegation being unfaithful, moving over to Crawford, uh, despite their uh, a previous allegiance to Adams, uh, as well as the regionalism, by the way, you know, Adams uh, is a Northeastern guy and by all means, New York should have followed him. But because Martin Van Buren was, you know, playing the games with uh, Henry Clay um they would uh, put the the vote in the House to a second vote. So that second vote, uh, Martin Van Buren surmised one of that Maryland delegate uh, would flip again. If you remember, Maryland originally went for Jackson and the first vote was going to go for Adams. Uh, Van Buren's like basically guaranteeing that one of their delegates would flip back to Jackson. And then john quincy adams would fall to two states short of the needed 13. Uh, his goal past that is that after john quincy adams gets bumped down to 11 states uh, which is two lower than he needed then basically all of the workings that clay had done to try and position john adams and position himself uh, in positions of power would basically fall apart and all of the reps at the time would uh recalculate And they would uh, feel more obliged to abide by the wishes of the popular vote at the time, which 41% still wanted to elect Jackson. So that was Martin Van Buren's goal. And he was very, very close to it, too. Uh, He, according to uh, his whipping, had the uh, amount of votes needed. But the votes, as, as all things with humans do, that, you know, people needed to abide by their word. Uh, And that's kind of where the gray area comes into play here. (laughs) So um, the clay camp, who's uh, trying to keep everything together on their end, knows that uh, there's a weak link in the New York delegation. So that New York delegation, uh, one of the individuals in there is our good old pal General Van Rennie, uh, who was historically known as being uh, fickle and he was the most fickle of the group. Uh, And so Clay was uh, putting considerable pressure on him to switch. Uh, I won't uh, go in and quote it because my uh, fiance thinks that uh, it's a little bit too boring to read the autobiographies of of Martin Van Buren. Uh, But it's really interesting if you wanted to uh, read. It's around like one page 150. Uh, The uh, election at the time that day. Uh, basically general van is going back and forth between uh, Van Buren and the clay camp uh, he starts with Van Buren he confirms he tells him I'm gonna I'm not gonna vote for Adams he doesn't even like Adams as a person remember because his brother-in-law is uh, Alexander Hamilton so he's basically known for many years he does not like Adams uh, but clay you know and his buddy Daniel Webster meet with van uh, general van Rennie right before the election uh, in the house. And they really cook up a crazy story, how the political implications, the whole fall, the union doomsday kind of thing. If this election is not decided and that really, really upsets general van Rennie. Um, but he leaves the meeting and he tells the New York camp that's trying to, uh, basically push for Crawford that it doesn't matter what Henry Clay told him. Uh, it is irrelevant because he's going to stick to his word. He's going to vote for Crawford, and the election is going to go as Martin Van Buren wants it to. Uh, so he's sitting there in the house, and he he is uh, very physically disturbed. Uh, so Van Buren recounts that he's watching this guy, and he's he's very disturbed, uh, and you can tell that there's just a lot on his mind. Uh, but at the time, they're they're passing around the box that's collecting the votes, and General Van Rennie, uh, as he was known to do at the time, uh, he uh, bows his head and basically prays to God, prays to his maker. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? He's seeking guidance. Uh, He's unsure whether he should vote for Adams or Crawford. Uh, And in this moment, as he's, he's requesting this assistance for God and he's got his head down and he's looking on the ground, he opens his eyes. And as he opens his eyes, he sees a vote on the ground. And that vote has John Quincy Adams' name already written on it. So General Van Rennie takes that vote off of the ground, picks it up, and again, it's got John Quincy Adams' name on it. He he takes it as a sign from God, that God wants him at that moment to vote for John Quincy Adams. So what does he do? When the box gets to him, that vote goes in it as General Van Rennie's vote. uh, When the uh, votes are counted, the New York delegation ends up uh, going for uh, Adams by one singular vote, which was General Van Rennie's. That meant that uh, the New York delegation stayed put. John Quincy Adams had 13 states, ends up being elected the sixth president of the United States. So, crazy time. Uh, in the political aftermath of that, uh, Henry Clay does, in fact, get the role of Secretary of State. Uh, so, John Quincy Adams puts him in the role that he wants to be, uh, which, in Henry Clay's mind, is uh, the primary objective. Because, what does that make him, in his mind, next man up? You know, he's looking at number seven now. I want to be seventh President of the United States. Uh, Unfortunate. Reality for Henry Clay is uh, that kind of uh, action or deal or lack thereof, whatever you want to call it, if it was uh, really quid pro quo or not, uh, the fact that he accepted that role of Secretary of State basically condemned the entire administration. Uh, Adams uh, really uh, didn't do a lot in the four years as president. Uh, Henry Clay uh, basically had this storm cloud over his head for the rest of his life now because of this action. So rather than the secretary of state role being the mechanism that would catapult him to be the next president, it was actually the, uh, the call of war from the Jackson camp who was so upset when they heard that Henry Clay was going to be secretary of state. They felt so, uh, taken advantage of at the time, uh, That they basically had this corrupt bargain is what Jackson was calling it. He wrote this all the way to the election in 1828 where he had a rematch against John Quincy Adams. Absolutely destroys him because the people, after listening to Jackson for four years about this corrupt bargain, agreed with him. They're like, whether it was corrupt or not, the fact that Henry Clay ended up Secretary of State was both the undoings of John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay. So... Uh, that kind of begs the question uh if god had intervened in this election uh you know in john quincy adams so that that would signify he wanted uh john quincy adams to be president yet john quincy adams has a very uneventful four years gets uh called out and loses the next election uh, in the same way that you know his father lost his second election it begs the question, uh, why did God want him to be president? If he did actually intervene on the behalf uh, or if God did intervene through General Van Rennie and that uh, mysterious vote on the ground, uh, you know, what was the purpose? So I think the historical significance to understand is uh, John Quincy Adams, as a contributor to history, uh his time before and during his presiden- his, uh, his presidency it really is not significant at all however uh the unique thing about john quincy adams he's one of two so only two former presidents uh to serve in another elected role uh after their president so uh, not only does he get elected to the house after he's president Uh, when his district back home uh, votes for him basically against his will, he holds that position in the House for 17 years. So John Quincy Adams does four years as president and then he goes to the House and over the course of those 17 years is basically the most hated man in the House. See, so you, might, you might ask yourself, you know, is, was he hated because of the whole Henry Clay stuff and the political doings of the election of 1824? No. John Quincy Adams, in this time of these, these 17 years, he becomes the most outspoken advocate for the, oboli- the abolition of slavery. Uh, he is... Absolutely detested and received death threats and things from the, the, the southern delegations and the southern sympathizers throughout the 1830s and 40s. Uh, as he's fighting against slavery in DC, he's arguing uh, in front of the Supreme Court the uh, case of the freeing of the slaves on the Spanish vessel, the Amistad, uh, which is basically. Uh, a group of slaves on their way into slavery, overthrew their captors, and wanted to sail home to Africa. Uh, but most importantly, John Quincy Adams is fighting this uh, thing called the gag rule. Uh, at the time, in 1830, uh, this was the first time that slavery was becoming more of a topic of discussion. Beforehand, it was kind of just a status quo uh, but people were starting to wake up and they were uh, questioning the uh, morality of slavery and uh, whether or not uh, the institution should be continued to be allowed in the uh, the southern states and if the institution should be allowed to spread via the uh, you know, bringing in of new states such as the annexation of Texas, Missouri, uh, basically just a lot of, Uh, difficulties at play, uh, slavery becomes really a hot button issue. And because of that, in the 30s, there's this uh, implementation of this rule in the house called the gag rule, uh, which was in place for eight years from 1836 to 1844, which basically meant the house would not talk about slavery at all. So anyone who brought up slavery or brought up a petition Uh, anything involving slavery that was uh, even remotely close to uh, having the institution uh, be cast in a dark light, uh, they would immediately get impeached, okay? So the gag rule was very serious. uh, It effectively meant that the conversation that people wanted to start having in the 1830s, which was uh, the morality of of slavery – was being gagged out by this gag rule. And John Quincy Adams made it his mission to get this gag rule abolished. And in 1844, uh, he actually does that. Important thing to note at the time uh, is less than 20 years later, because of that, because of all the fights in uh, the Senate and the House from there on out, uh, and the actions throughout the country, you have uh, the Civil War starting with the uh, secession of the southern states uh, and you have eventually the uh, you know abolishment of slavery uh and so it's kind of crazy to think about that uh John Quincy Adams his most impactful years were not as he was president it was as he was in the house of representatives uh playing a key role in the eventual uh, fighting of the Civil War, basically, to to stop slavery uh, within the uh, southern states. So uh, the question originally posed is, uh, if God did uh, have a hand in the election of 1824, was that potentially the reason? Uh, Would John Quincy Adams have been as strong of a uh, person to be the head of uh, this this abolition movement in the House had he not been former president, so was the title that he was carrying basically helping add weight to uh, this whole concept, add legitimacy. Because uh, you know beforehand uh, it wasn't really anyone of major prominence. A lot of the uh, the founding fathers were slave owners, and so uh, they sided more with the southern uh, states. But John Quincy Adams was not that case. Uh, He was this outspoken advocate against it for 17 years. And so uh, would he have succeeded as well had he not spent those four years as president and acquired that title? Or was the title uh, the legitimacy that the abolition movement uh, needed in order to gain traction to eventually uh, lead to that civil war? I'll let you decide. So, cool, thank you very much for tuning in to uh, episode one of American Memoirs. Uh, Very excited to continue this and and, uh, keep sharing interesting stories from my readings. Uh, If you have any suggestions or uh, wanna share any comments, feel free uh, to shoot me a message on Twitter or uh, wherever, I don't actually know. Uh, Where podcasters talk to their audiences, but I'm sure if there is anyone who uh, listens to this, you can let me know. Thanks, and have a great day.